part-time barista in South Yarra. Part-time bartender in St Kilda. Hello, I'm a part-time bartender. Welcome to Project A Plus. My name's Hunter, your name's Hugh. So, um, how have you been? Good, how have you been? Uh, okay. What's been happening? Working? Yeah, mostly. What about you? Well, guess what I did for the first time? What? I opened the job-seeking website this morning. <laughs> no way, wow. After after a solid year and a half of me asking you if you were looking for a job, uh, did you find one? I mean, I just opened the home page and logged in. That was as far as I got. Mm. I, was, I was hoping you could talk me through a few applications <laughs> instead of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I'll follow up for you. That's good. I hope you get a job soon, even if it means it'll be harder to record this podcast. <laughs> uh, well, so, so at this point, I've opened the website and not done anything. That's step one. It'll be like a few months before I <laughs> enter. Actually, yeah, the, I'm actually thinking about getting a new, another job, so... Really? In yeah. addition to your existing job? Yeah, but not until my hours sort of go down in September. Yeah, okay. What are we talking about today? Talking about two films. Both art films. What? Not Netflix originals? No, I know. What a surprise. Fuck off. We're watching Nicolet Rose. Bad timing. It's also known Bad as timing. Sorry. A sensualist obsession. It's really weird that this film was like marketed as like a skin flick in the States to some degree. Was it really? Yeah. Like an erotic, erotically charged thriller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I, I have to imagine that people going into this, uh, expecting that would be disappointed. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so bad timing. And then we're starting a new project for the first time in forever. What? We're starting a little series about the Iranian new wave, which will consume months and months of our podcast, presumably. Mm-hmm. And we're starting by discussing the films of uh, the acclaimed filmmaker Abbas Karasami. And uh, first film up this week is his 19... Oh, I'm going I'm to guess what that will be. You know, eight, God, I was going to say that. A uh, film which is called Where is the Friend's House? The first of his Coker trilogy. Let's do Bad Timing Fast. You were born to love me when I was 29 And operating cameras on the man inside I'll make a uncle fuck you Picture Vienna, Hugh. Are you there? Yes. It's the 1970s. Okay. I'm picturing it. Our Carfunkel was also there. Ooh, what's he doing there? <laughs> He's a, he a psychologist. No, he's not on tour. Oh. He's, he's, he's an actor in this case. Wow. Um, he stopped being sort of a musician and has become an actor. In this case, he's playing a psychologist. A research psychoanalyst. Yes, well, slash college professor who um, falls into this whirlwind relationship with a mysterious American woman named Melina. They're like Teresa Russell. Mm-hmm. He, he sort of becomes obsessed with her the relationship goes, takes ups and downs you know the whole whole standard bitty there 
But I've just said, Hugh, maybe the plot of the film, but it's not how the narrative is presented to us. No. The film opens with a suicide attempt by Molina. And basically the resounding question of the film is, what, why is this happening? Rogue uses an intricate system of editing flashbacks to um, evocatively uh, uh, detail uh, the specifics of their relationship and what has brought her to the point of death. Uh, now, Q, did bad timing with its unique editing style, which is, I guess, unique well, compared to most directors. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That was that was bad timing. Okay, so funny. Uh, unique compared to other editing styles, maybe typical for Bro, who is probably best known for employing these uh, jagged and time demolishing. Jagger. It was Jagger in performance. No, that was... Um, he employed Jagger. No, that was uh, uh, Free Jack. Mm. Uh, what's my favorite thought? <laughs> uh, what was the uh, editing patterns and the way this film plays with time um, enough to make it stand out from the typical concerns of erotic obsession, which so many films are about? That's my question to you. Uh, and scene. Think, uh, <laughs> sorry. Again. Um, So I think we should add one thing to your synopsis, which is there is an investigation going on in this film undertaken by one Harvey Keitel. The ambiguously Austrian (laughs) Harvey Keitel. Um, Yeah, so he's investigating what happened with uh, Melina, and he is uh, interrogating throughout the film um, famous musician Garfunkel man. <laughs> Garfunkel man. So what you're asking me is, is this like its actor's namesake art? No. <laughs> That's not what I asked you. <laughs> what did you ask me then? <laughs> did it stand out from the, the pack of erotic obsession movies? Ah, which, right. which are a dime a dozen. I mean, we could, we could say unambiguously that this is a piece of art. <laughs> I think. It's an art film in that Art Garfunkel is in it. <laughs> That's the definition of art film. Right? <laughs> I'm going mur- to come and murder you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, so your question essentially is, is this any good according to me? Yeah, it is a good movie, yes. That's my question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I was uh, that fond of this film. Hmm. I, I didn't hate it, didn't completely love it either. Mm. So it has all the hallmarks of a rogue feature. And by rogue feature, I don't mean like, you like a pirate? made outside of the, the film industry or anything. I mean, made by Nicholas Rogue. We have uh, the fragmentation of time and space, mm. which he's so obsessed with. Um, though here, I think it's very much appropriate to the story yeah. that's being told because it's essentially sure. constructed through the memories of Alex yeah. and um, the investigation as well. Yes. Uh, we also have diffuse characterization, I mm. would say. Mm-hmm. We have the stunt casting of a musician. We do. In one Art Garfunkel. One Artemis Garfunkel. We have his usual stylistic traits as well. And by his, I mean rogues, not Art Garfunkels. <laughs> um, so we have like the, the, his predilection for zoom lenses mm. and showing the zoom motion, especially using that as a scene transition. 
Uh -huh. um, we have obvious, somewhat shabby use of ADR as well. Uh -huh. We have the frank depiction of sex. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also have the problem that I think plagues even Rogue's best films, mm. in that it's difficult to connect or care with the central characters in any meaningful way. Mm. And certainly you could argue that that is partly by design, or entirely by design. I would say, yeah, I feel like that's, that's pretty... I mean, I, in terms of, like, the, the Art Garfunkel character, I think it's definitely by design. But Yeah, but nonetheless, that's what we have here. Yeah. So that, there is that at the centre of it. So it's this this portrait of a very dark relationship and a very yeah. destructive relationship. For sure. Um, but I, I do think it suffers somewhat from um, Garfunkel's rather listless performance, even though that's kind of baked into the character. Yeah, but I do think he's pretty unengaging. There's a problem with it as well. Like, he doesn't seem like he's out of place in the film, and he doesn't seem like he's contrary to Rogue's uh, intentions yeah. or anything. But nor is he much of an actor. It does make uh, it does make um, Molina's attractives you would see pretty inexplicable, I think. Yeah, exactly. It's difficult to discern what 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 she would have been attracted to in the first yeah. place that enabled her to be subjected to. Yeah, his psychological torment. Yeah. So he basically just seems like a, an asshole, like an infuriatingly opaque, controlling, jealous, sexually obsessed asshole. Yeah. From pretty early on in this film. And I think it would have been stronger, I agree with you, if we had a better grasp on his appealing qualities. Yeah. Um, especially in, like, the early stages of the relationship. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I'm kind of of two minds, because, yeah, on one hand, I think he's, like, pretty weak, but at the same time, like, I feel like he's kind of perfect for the role as written, too. Mm. So it's a flaw of, like, the screenplay as well, as opposed to just his performance. But I actually think even worse is Harvey Keitel. <laughs> Yeah, very strange, strange performance. Who is truly terrible as as an Austrian inspector. Even if you account for his dreadful attempt at an Austrian accent, and I use the word attempt in its loosest possible sense, I, di I could not even tell if he was supposed to be Austrian for a large part of this film. The problem with that is, like, I feel like Harvey Keitel is, like, the most American actor, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's why it's so funny in uh, Saturn 6 or whatever it is where he's overdubbed with a weird <laughs> British voice. That's also funny. Um, but yeah, there's, there's moments where you're like, what, what is he trying to do? Yeah, it's just so strange. No, and uh, Saturn 3 came out the same year as this did. Oh, there you go. Uh, did you like anything about his performance? I just thought it was really jarring and bad. Uh, I mean, I like, his, I like looking at his face. And whenever he doesn't talk, he's like, fine. But yeah. When he gives dialogue, Beth. I mean, I like, the, I like the end scene where he's like freaking out a little bit. I, think, I know that was like kind of well done, but besides that, yeah, it's pretty pretty two zeros, I think. So that basically leaves Teresa Russell to do all the heavy lifting. But and she is she is fantastic in this, I think. Yeah, to her credit, she's the only person depicted in the film who is convincing as a human. And that's that's why I find this movie to be. I do, I do agree with you that there is something kind of. Um, unappealing and unlikable about it but ultimately I thought her performance is so compelling and it's it just rang so so true as like a, a portrait of abuse mm. and that that's a kind of like part of the thing with abusive relationships like how do you I mean you know at least from my kind of you know sometimes you're just like why why is this person still with this person you know you know they're like terrible for them like I feel like her performance goes a long way in sort of like uh, explicating the specific emotions yeah 
And I think like I I found this film. I get the first like forty or fifty minutes. I thought I thought were like this is like the editing is nice and has some decent cinematography. But I was like this is just like so boring, you know. And I came close to falling asleep. But I think that once I don't know it gets past a certain point, I found it really. Like, I found the ending to be like, incredibly moving, actually. <laughs> Not the part where she, she gets raped, but um, when they had that like brief confrontation in New York, and it's clear that she's like been able to to get get past him, you know. But then he's like still he's still going to be like mired in this obsession. That's like you know, I don't know. I just thought that was like really really great. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some parts of this movie that I really respected, but I do think it has some pretty significant flaws. And I thought I think like the soundtrack, especially I thought was like so on the nose. Oh, the "Who Are You" bit was awful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it plays it plays the the Who song "Who Are You" while he's watching her, wondering who she is. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, well, "Who is she?" Uh, what do you think about uh, Daniel Elliott? Oh, the uh, yeah, yeah, the um, uh, the husband. Yeah, yeah. He was all right. <laughs> he really did not have uh, that many lines. That was the impression that I I got. No, but like I think he's he's quite an important role in the film. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like the two performances that that work, I think, are Teresa Russell and him. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Extent. I think he man- he he has the right vibe. Yeah. For that particular character. Yeah, I agree. In uh, yeah, he doesn't have many lines, but he has a, he has a lot to sort of communicate within that. Yeah. About the type of person he is. Um, his accent wasn't perfect, but you know. <laughs> wow! I just learned that uh, while Art Gar- Garfunkel was making this film, his girlfriend committed suicide. So. She did, yes. Well, there's there's two parallels. So that's one, and the other one is that. Uh, so this film depicts the the wonderful trope of the intellectual and the ingenue, right? Yeah. And uh, that is mirrored in in the fact that um, Teresa Russell went on to to marry. The director, yeah. Nicholas Rowe, yeah. who was some like thirty years her senior, I think at least. Yeah, because he was he he was a late bloomer in terms of a director because he was a cinematographer yeah, before he he was a director. Born in like nineteen twenty eight or something. Yep. And she was younger than even her character <laughs> in this. She was like twenty three, twenty two, twenty three. Yeah, because she's supposed to be like my age, and I was like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> this is sort of following on from the same point we made about. Uh, Garfunkel's performance and that aspect of his character. I think this film would have been stronger and even more disturbing mm-hmm. if he was, uh, yeah, if we did see another side of the Garfunkel character that made us understand. Yeah. So, so it becomes more universal in the sense that people see their own relationships within this this relationship depicted, and therefore the troubling aspects of it are even more, more troubling. troubling. Yeah, sure, sure. As opposed to like this guy seems like a dick from the get go. Yeah, he does. God, that rape scene is so disturbing. It is. What do you think about the like the introduction of like Cold War politics in this movie? Sort of a strange detour, I think. Are you speaking out a particular scene? Yeah, like where he gets recruited to do the psychological profiles on... Ah, oh, that's right, yeah. It just felt kind of, like, inelegant to me. That seemed a bit odd, yeah. <laughs> I really like the sequence where Harvey Keitel is, like, wandering around her apartment, right? And, like, mm. cuts to flashbacks of things that, like... It's like, how did he extrapolate that from, <laughs> from this? I don't know if it was necessarily saying that he's directly extrapolating the exact sequence of events. No. But, like, stuff like that. But the, I just like the way it's edited. Is like she's watching them do one of these things, you know. I, yeah, I liked that. I, I did too. That was, that was effective. It's very, um, also very striking. An interesting 
technique where he uh, it's employed quite sparingly, but he uses uh, internal narration during dialogue sequences so yeah. the characters like rehearse what they want to say yeah and then they say like a version of that or a truncated version of what they just thought which i thought mm. was quite interesting because i hadn't really seen it employed in that way before yeah it is it is interesting um yeah but I, I did like the the way the way the story is actually constructed and the way his style depicts this relationship i think i think it's a really interesting way of um and you know because because time will be jumbled up when you think back over yeah, for sure. your experiences with someone. And I like how, like, um, unqueenly the flashbacks are motivated, too. Hmm. Like, oftentimes there are maybe, like, objects or something else, like, dialogue that inspires them. But sometimes it's just, like, this flash of memory that happens for, you know, no reason that you can really tell. Which I also think is, like, more realistic than, like, the typical, like, Proustian, like, you know. Like looking at the exact object that yeah. takes you back yeah. to... A time when you held that object. Which is like, I mean, I think is true to some degree, but it also is like a little too clean, I think, than the, the actual power of memory, which is like very like sort of accidental. And especially in this case, because he's reacting to her suicide attempt. Yeah. And then trying to contextualize that with his own memories. So it will it will come randomly and in, in different bursts. And yeah, whatever. for sure. It wouldn't just all be directly motivated by his physical space. No. Which it is as well. But. Yeah. Well, it's like a mixture of, of things, which is why it's, why it's interesting. Yeah, it did make me more interested to watch, like, uh, Don't Look Now, I think. I think Don't Look Now is a better film. Okay, great. Um, all right, so we do uh, the Friends Home now. Let's do it. Let's kick off the project. Okay, now you, now you need, to put in the, uh, need to put in both the project music, okay? And then uh, you can then put in my uh, Where's the Friends Home song. So So there's going to be like a project theme song? Yeah. For each specific project or for just the commencement of any project? No, no, no. Here's a project. There's there's both a project theme song, which is for the commencement of any project, okay? Okay. And there's a song that plays when we start doing a project segment of the podcast, right? Then there's a song for each specific project. Okay. And then there's a song for the, for the specific film, itself. film within that project. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's it. So was that three songs or four songs? This episode will be four songs. Next episode will be three songs. Wait, wait, wait. Well, I don't get the first two. Like, I thought it was just there's a generic song saying we're going to begin a project. Now. Yeah. So that's, that's it, right? Yeah. And there's a song for the specific project, right? That yeah, you play on every... song. Yeah. That you play on every episode when we do that project right yeah so that's two and then the third one would be the specific film that's only yeah. three yeah three but then four is the um starting a new project song right R- starting a new project oh, no, no. song like no no no, no. <laughs> so, okay this is it every time every time we start a new project that's one song right okay so there has to be like Pro- it's the new project it's the new project it's the new project yeah it's a new project right okay but there's also like then there's a song. This is part of. This is just the project section of the podcast. Yes, is that as well. That's two. And then there's, here's what the specific project <laughs> yes. is this time. Yes. And then there's within that here's the film we were talking about. Yeah. All right. So I'm gonna remember this for the edit. So that's four songs. Yeah. <laughs> of which I will be contributing only one. <laughs> project time. It's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project 
It's Project Dad. It's the start of a new project, and I can't wait to start. Iranian new wave. Iranian new wave. Where is the friend's house? Is it here? No. Is it here? No. Where is the friend's house? Is it here? No. Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it? No. 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 Where is the friend's house? Where is? Where is the the friend's friend's house? House. 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 Uh, where is the friend's home? Abbasfir Stani. Yeah. Although he'd been working in the industry since 1969. 1987's Where is the Friend's Home is the first of Kiristami's films to gain international prominence. The story could not be simpler. Barbek Ahmedpour plays a schoolboy, Ahmed, who accidentally takes his friend's notebook home. Mm. Knowing his friend may be expelled if he turns up at school the next day without his notebook, Ahmed sets out on a quest to locate his friend's house. Now there's a lineage here with Kiristami's initial role at the Institute for Intellectual Development of Children and Young Adults. Mm. And indeed, many of his previous short films covered similar territory. But I think it also marks a point of departure as mm -hmm. it proved to be the beginning of a metatextual series of films known as the Coca Trilogy. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing we're exploring the other films in that trilogy in subsequent weeks. Probably just, why don't we just do both the other ones next week? <laughs> if yeah. we can find them, easily. I think one of them was on YouTube. Oh. Yeah, I think I think I just came across it and it was in, it was in full on YouTube. Ah, there you go then. But let me just double check. Yeah. It's there. Yeah, it is. Well, oh yeah, I see it now, okay. So that's one down. And then what's the other one called? Uh, through the olive branches, through the olive trees. Through the olive trees, yeah, let's have a look if that's also in there. And it is. Yeah, perfect. Uh, that's That'll be easy then. So our listeners can go to YouTube and watch it in preparation for the next episode. Yeah. Watch along with us, guys. Uh, so that's the film. Yep. That's it. We're all done. Yep. We've explained it sufficiently. That's all we do. Doubles as analysis, because I did such a good job. Yeah. But uh, the question is... What is your opinion? <laughs> it's good. Yeah? Well, what's your opinion? I concur. It's good. It's good. Sorry, I concur. <coughs> Excuse me. It's good, so that's two thumbs up. Yeah, that's it. That's done. We're done. Uh, maybe I should speak more to this film's style. Yeah. So it's, it's fable-like, yet... At the same time, naturalistic. Yeah. So it's kind of like a moral tale in the spirit of Italian neorealism. Yes. Or neorealism. And it shares some um, tendencies with it as well, I think. I think a comparison can be made to a film like The Bicycle Thief, where you yeah. have this very basic story that takes on a symbolic, yeah. socio-political resonance. So here we have the protagonist going on a very straightforward quest but one which teases out issues relating to the structure of Iranian society mm -hmm. 
uh, coming modernization disconnect between generations mm -hmm. uh, as well as probably most fundamentally of all questions of human morality mm -hmm. um, so it's essentially a parable about compassion because this kid feels this moral obligation towards his friend and it's the mm -hmm. way he pursues that quest even in the face of an adult world that doesn't really understand or listen to him like most uh, of the adults seem to think he's not even there at all hmm I think this is a very easy film to like. So the story is about as universal as you could get. And uh, the protagonist is sympathetic. The acting is subdued but very convincing. Uh, working, I'm assuming, with a largely non-professional cast. Yeah. And I guess that's explored in subsequent films. Yeah. Especially the next one. And um, for those of us for whom this doesn't represent our lived experience, I think it's a fascinating glimpse into this culture for sure. in this particular region. For sure. And I really, really like the photography, and especially the color palette. Yeah, me too. Obviously, that's a reflection of the region in which it was shot, which is Coca. Yes. But I also think it's a testament to Kiristami's eye. Kiristami's observational eye, yes. Yes. Um, the choice of locations feels very deliberate, and it does contribute to this fairy tale like quality. And you think of the the kid trekking back and forth over this zigzag path on the hillside, and through the the twisted foliage and mounded ground of the forest. But I, I think it's 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 kind of odd because it it does have this this basic fable like quality or parable like mm. quality, but it doesn't quite function on a level that would be necessarily appropriate for children no which is which is funny that it's like sort of framed as such in the opening titles i mean i feel like that's how this maybe film was able to skirt some of the uh censorship possibly mm. by um working under the auspices of like an educational film because there are there are sort of odd notes um that that, that kind of disrupt the basic narrative yeah. like there's this um discursion where his grandfather and uh, other members of his generation have mm -hmm. a discussion about discipline and, mm -hmm. and the, the changing the attitudes yeah. of the time. And it leaves the perspective of the kid for an extended period, um, which it hadn't done prior to that point no. to any degree. And um, there's also the moment where he's guided by an older man towards uh, his friend's house or what might be his friend's house. And then he inexplicably decides not to knock on the door and it's not that clear why he has made that decision and decided just to go home with the notebook. Mm -hmm. Although it comes together in like a satisfying way the next day when he, he does the homework yeah. for the kid. Um, it's Yeah, that's never exactly explained. Uh, what, what specific point exactly? I zoned out a little bit. Hmm? Oh, uh, you know when the old guy is directing him to where yeah. he supposes his friend's house is? Yeah, yeah. And he goes down the steps and it's kind of cold and windy. Mm -hmm. Oh, he that's because the it's the same, it's the house that he went to earlier and it was the wrong. Is that what it was? Yeah, it's the same house. Because you see okay. there's like the, the donkey outside of it and stuff. Right, was that what it was? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> so your incompetence was, <laughs> was lending the film uh, <laughs> ambiguous quality. <laughs> Good. Okay. All houses <laughs> look the same. <laughs> All radiant houses specifically call you racist. I'm architecturally racist. <laughs> what else? What, what? Please continue. That makes sense then. I guess, I guess it does function in that way then. Because <laughs> that was You're one that I didn't pick up at the time. I was like, what is that? I think that's fair. I think you could miss that. Uh, not if you are watching the movie. 
So uh, please continue your commentary. But, and the, the second disruption, which is shorter, is when it shows the uh, the older guy who was guiding him to the house that turns out he went before. It shows him return to his own house alone and uh, resume his existence. Uh-huh. And I really liked that disruption. Uh-huh. I guess it has a function because then it, the next cut is to the kid once he's returned home again. So it just elides the journey back, essentially. Right. But I enjoyed that. I did too. And you know, I like the photography in the night sequences where it's like, you know, only the parts of the the things that are illuminated or shown at all. Or I mean, I, mean, I guess it's sort of like coming in with using like real film. Hmm. So maybe I'm just praising the fact that it was shot on the technology that was available. But it, it's just such a striking, you know, series of images where like basically the only illuminated figures are like the boy, like some windows and stuff like that. You know. Well, it seemed very deliberate because the the conversation that he's having with the the older guy is about the fact that he's designed the windows and doors, and we get those amazing patterns on mm. the windows just being like the the main focus of the scene. Yeah, which is otherwise pretty dark. Yeah, I really like the pacing. Um, Me too. So as with other Kurosawa films I've seen, it takes on the rhythms of everyday life. Yeah, uh, in a way that that sort of reminded me of Ozu. Mm. And it had, like, a really nice, gentle momentum that, that sustained the film. Uh-huh. I think the, the first, that disruption where we do get the conversation with his grandfather uh-huh. does actually disrupt that momentum as well. Yeah. I guess deliberately to some extent. And I, I have a sequence um, where after he's left to go back to, you know, Coker, where it just, like, follows the old guy back to his, his house. That's what I said before. Oh, <laughs> I must have zoned out. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. This episode's going great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I made trouble painting digits. <laughs> this is the first and last exploration of the Iranian new wave. <laughs> no. Okay. Let's let's keep on going. Um, it's interesting that like pretty much the like representative of any sort of governmental force comes in the the uh, the teacher. That's like the only representation of the state at all, pretty much. It's, it's interesting that he's allowed to make the teacher seem like such an authoritarian jerk, you know? Hmm. I feel like it's something that would have... I mean, if I were making a... If I were ready to censorship board, you know? <laughs> what else? The kid's good. Yeah. I think, I think both the kids are good. He has really big eyes. Yeah. He's got a very ex- expressive face. I think they might be brothers or something. At least they have the last name. Not sure. I think child actors are an extremely dicey proposition. Yeah. So it's always a wonder when it works so well. Let's move on to bad timing. No, we already did that. I think our discussion of bad timing was better than, than uh, Where's the Friends Home. Yeah, I don't think this was a good discussion at all. We'll have to do better next time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Keep telling yourself that. I mean, well, what are we supposed to discuss here, you know? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, that's the, that's the problem when you watch, like, your realist films, I think. Because on one hand, they're like, they're getting pretty enjoyable to watch. But when you get down to it, it's just like, yeah, it's, you know, about, it's just a slice of everyday life. That's it. I think there's really something commendable about how uh, Karasani is, like, capturing the rhythms of the, these people. Hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how, you know, welding that, um, 
naturalistic approach to a metafictional like conceit as what apparently happens in these other two films we're going to watch. Uh, sort of comes out. I really wanted to watch these films after seeing them featured in Mark Cousins' story of film. So I'm looking forward to the other two. Yeah, me too. Alright, so... Um, so that's two thumbs up. Yep. Alright, so... Uh, Project success. Uh, okay, let's um, do... What, what else do we do on the show? Box office? <laughs> Here's the box office for July 18th to 21st in Australia and the USA on the count of three. It's a new film this week. It is. I'm sure it's the same film yeah, for both of probably. us. It's probably going to be like that for most weeks. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> All right. Three. Is cultural domination. Yeah. Three, two, two one. one. The Lion King. Twenty nineteen. Movie I'm never gonna see. Fourteen and a half mil. Just about. Wow, we got one hundred and ninety-one mil. Hmm. Well, we <laughs> we're really doing a short one this week. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> These art house films. Not much to it. it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> we spoke for so long about like yesterday. <laughs> we had a decent discussion about bad timing. That's true. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. Uh, so I watched some other films, a few other films. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, I went to a screening. A screening of two uh, Ernst Lubitsch films, one of which was uh, Trouble in Paradise from 1932, uh, which is a delightful pre-code screwball comedy. Is that yeah, people are like, you know, having uh, unsubmitted sex? Yeah, exactly. That's what pre-code means, right? And it assuredly does not outstay its welcome. <laughs> wow, what a stunning review. It's pretty close to being perfect for what it is, I would say. So Billy Wilder famously had a sign in his office that read, What would Lubitsch do? And it's always a wonder to me that his most Lubitsch-indebted comedies are not as economic when it comes to duration. So Trouble in Paradise is like 80, 80 minutes or 83 minutes or something. And although I'd never accuse Wilder of padding out his scripts unnecessarily... Everything's pretty tightly structured and worked out. I think that type of farce works best when it's limited to like a hundred minutes or less. Yeah. It's hard to sustain that, that type of comic momentum. Yeah, yeah. It gets a little overwhelming. Yeah, so some of Wilder's uh, less successful efforts do get wearying in a way that yeah. uh, a film like this is a nice tonic to. Uh, anyway, good. so that's highly recommended Trouble in Paradise. Good stuff. I also watched uh, Rosita, which is a, a, an earlier silent film he made, and this was uh, his sort of breakout American film. Um, Mary Pickford, who starred in it and uh, had some clout at the time, poached him from Germany for this project. And uh, this although she project, had, uh, a plus. A plus. Although uh, 
she had a weird relationship to the film and later kind of rejected it. Mm. So this is a restoration that was uh, supervised by MoMA uh-huh. in your home hometown. I mean, no. I mean, your current like town, my residence, your hometown. The, the place where I live. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's based largely on foreign language prints that were translated. Pickford kept one reel that she liked. That's funny. So that was uh, integrated. But I think, I think, although this is a pretty much intact, I think there's still one reel missing from its original version. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think what's interesting, watching it after Trouble in Paradise, as I did on this screening, it's interesting the way that a dialogue-heavy comedy like Trouble in Paradise actually is translated quite effectively to, to the silent format um, in terms of the famous Lubitsch touch that everyone goes on about. It doesn't seem to be lessened by the limitations of silent films, and it seems somewhat ahead of its time in its style. Not as, uh, I wouldn't say it's as good as Trouble in Paradise, but it's, it's certainly interesting for a 1923 comedy. Yeah, because as we all know, every film made in 1923 was, besides it is, is garbage. Exactly. Especially The General, which I think was 1927, maybe not 1923. <laughs> it looks like Three Ages was 1923. 1923. Yeah. Never seen it? Don't care. Three Ages is good. Not as good as The General. But good. Isn't the general like your favorite film of all time, though? So could you say that about literally any movie? I could. All the movies except the general are not as good as the general. Yeah. So you had just, it, yeah. just wanted to diffuse that comment forever beats out again. Uh, I rewatched Sleepless in Seattle for some reason. Because you enjoy wasting your time on garbage. And the little kid annoyed me. <laughs> but otherwise a flawless, perfect film. Otherwise perfect. <laughs> And finally, last night, I put on something on Netflix ostensibly to have in the background while I was doing work. Mm. On what? But instead, I just watched the whole of the film Sound City, directed <laughs> by one Dave Grohl. Oh, boy. <laughs> Which is a document of a famous studio that, that closed down. You know, I really like the Foo Fighters when I was a teenager. I think the Foo Fighters are trash. Yeah. I remember buying one of their CDs uh, when I was in Montreal. Um, this this has a lot of trash in it. Like it's, I guess it's some, the story of the studio itself. I find somewhat engaging. Mm. But the last, the the fetishization of like a recording space and analog technology and stuff is it, just a bunch of bullshit. Mm. I hate all that shit. That rockist kind of. Oh, uh, analog. Shit. Yeah, me too. I kind of feel the same way about uh, celluloid, but there's more of an argument you can make there. Like they go on with like, oh, now everyone can make music and there's not as many good things because of it and stuff like that. I'm like, come on. I'm so glad that there there is more opportunities for people to make music, especially because it evens the playing field for people who, who otherwise would never get anywhere near a recording studio. It, so the studio closes up, um, but Dave Grohl purchases the famous console that was used to record all these famous acts analog console and uh brings it to his own studio and makes like a sound city record featuring paul mccartney and other famous people recording like just the worst music ah <laughs> uh, it's it's horrible anyway that's sound city that's all the films i watched i saw two films um 
I guess it's all three gone. All three of which are from one country. Can you guess what country that is? No. <laughs> They're all from Japan. <laughs> oh. Uh, so, uh, last Wednesday I had the opportunity to go to a film festival uh, hosted by the Japan Society, which is like a you know, Japanese cultural institute here in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every year they do a festival called Japan Cuts where they highlight a selection of you know new Japanese films. Uh, but there's one that particularly caught my eye, uh, which is a film called Killing, which is directed by Shinya Tsukamoto. Do you know who that is? Uh, not by name. He is most famous for directing a film in the 90s called Tetsuo the Iron Man. Ah, uh, yes. I'm sure you are aware of. Um, he's had a long career making movies in that vein. Since this is his most recent film, which I think played at Venice and some other places, um, but which I assumed would remain a festival-bound film and it would never come out of the States on uh, any perspective besides film festivals. Luckily, we in New York and go to somewhere where I was playing, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to go see it because he also introduced the film and gave a Q&A, which we did not go to because my friend was not interested in going to the Q&A. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, Killing is essentially a sort of deconstructionist... Um, uh, Jadaeki film in the vein of something like Seven Samurai and it even t- lifts sort of I would say some of the narrative structure from Seven Samurai um, mm-hmm. and uh, specifically some of the characters from it and then makes them <laughs> twist them on their, their ear um, turns them into Iron Man yeah, yeah. Um, but it really is sort of a just the idea of a, of a samurai in general I think Mm-hmm. And the idea that there's some sort of like larger uh, positive code that governs their lives, um, and this is sort of reinforced by the fact that uh, Shinji Tsukamoto himself plays sort of the uh, what's the actor who's in who is in Akira and all those other Kurosawa films. He's like the head of the stuff at Samurai. Samurai. Ah, Shimuru. Yes. Takashi Shimuru. I don't trust you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Takashi Shimura. Yeah, that's it. Um, he's costume looks very similar to his character in, in Seven Samurai. Um, it's sort of the basic plotline where this guy is like re- going around the countryside recruiting uh, samurai. Well, it's sort of it's sort of twisted on its head. Whereas in Seven Samurai, the the um, titular samurai are sort of fighting for the people, right? This like random like shitty farming village. Yes. Uh, in this, um, he's more trying to remove where he's trying to recruit people to go to Edo in order to support the newly formed Shogunate. And uh, in doing so, sort of, like, it's stripping them from their homeland and stuff like that. Um, but basically, he's drawn into a conflict, a la Seven Samurai, these bandits who, at first, um, this local ronin is able to defuse without fighting them, and they seem to be mostly, um, you know, harmless, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then the leader of the samurai sort of or he, they, they humiliate this farm boy who the leader has recruited to be one of his, on his, on his team. Uh, and then he sort of, sort of, he retaliates by killing a bunch of them, and then it sort of escalates from there. Um, and it's also, it's, it, there's also a thread where the sort of main character is this um, Ronin who, um, while a adept swordsman is, has not killed anyone, is sort of a pacifist. Uh, and that's sort of the conflict that's set up between this you know, the, the, this embodiment of the samurai code versus this sort of pacifist ronin who he's trying to draw into conflict with them. 
Um, and it's really well done. It has some really great digital uh, cinematography. Um, it has there's there's one action scene which is just amazingly shot, which is like blurry to the point of like being incomprehensible. <laughs> but I feel like it's oftentimes levied as a critique against action films, and they have like this this really fast motion and like shaky camera. But here it becomes like this almost impressionistic um, version of this battle, where it's like impossible to tell what's going on intentionally, you know. Mm. Uh, and it really plays well with uh, darkness and the ability of digital cameras to like uh, capture, you know, low light photography really easily. Uh, I thought it was really, really brilliant. So there you go. That's that's killing. I should get Komodo. Probably gonna break pretty highly on my top ten list of this year. Mm. So, there you go. Uh, and then I watched uh, uh, Yukio Mishima's only um, director effort. And Mishima is, of course, one of the most famous Japanese novelists of all time. Um, I would say uh, equally famous for committing suicide in an incredibly public manner than he is for any of his works in the West. What was his public suicide? Um, well, he, in the like last year of his life, he started up this like, branch of the self-defense forces that was, like, ultra-nationalist. Uh, and um, they were mostly, like, drawn from students and stuff like that. Um, but in 1970, he attempted to stage a coup by taking over a, a army, like, headquarters, right? Mm. Um, with a couple of his students. Uh, and that failed because he, he gave this, like, speech, which is kind of, like, funny in a pathetic way, where he's trying to, you know, get the, the general army to rise up and defend the emperor or something like that, and people were just, like, mocking him. Uh, but in, in reaction to that, he uh, created seppuku. And then uh, oh, a number of people have sort of read that the coup as just a pretext for his suicide, because a lot of his works are sort of about uh, committing ritual suicide, of which patriotism, uh, his only film effort, his only directorial effort, anyway, uh, is... Also about, <laughs> which is about this. Um, it's adapted from his short stories, and it is about July twenty sixth or February twenty sixth. February twenty sixth incident. Do you know what that is? Hmm? Um, so there is this uh, <laughs> another attempted kill um, on in nineteen thirty six by a super right wing faction of the Japanese army, which is called the February twenty sixth incident, where they attempted to. Um, overthrow the normal army leadership and basically there's there's this like mini, mini civil war carried out between um, the army proper and then these like young officers right and it, it led to the deaths of a bunch of these these young officers um, and then eventually the emperor like, came out on the side of the normal army and stuff like that um, but anyway so um, this is like a the young newly wedded uh, officer um, has been spared having to, or like his his friends who are part of this like group of young officers have uh, you know, started this rebellion and have not included him because he's a newlywed and don't want to uh, have him, you know have, feel sorry or pity for him because they don't want to, you know, leave his wife a widow or something like that, um, but he knows uh, the next day I'll be forced to go and fight his friends, so in response uh, he commits ritualized suicide, and then his wife commits ritualized suicide. Uh, that's basically the film. Um, it is a shot in a very stylized manner, uh, and a set that's uh, sort of reminiscent of like a nose stage, right? Mm-hmm. 
and uh, it's a really strange film, and it, it's all about sort of like the uh, eroticism of, of death and committing <laughs> suicide. Uh, I think it is uh, somewhat striking, um, but yeah, I don't know. Shit <laughs> has has definitely has some striking images, but uh, I don't know. You know, I don't. Know, uh, I agree that there is something about you know linking up death and, and eros, right? But the the extent to which uh, Mishima uh, takes it in his fiction and in this movie and in his real life maybe a bit much for me. Hmm. So I kind of kind of faulted on that angle, um, and it, it has some evocative sequences, but ultimately I think the short story space on her is more interesting. Um, so I would say read that short story instead of watching this movie if you're at all intrigued. Um, this short story is only a couple of pages long, so. Uh, you could just sort of breeze through that really quickly. This is sort of inspired by the fact that I got this uh, anthology of Japanese short stories and that I was included in it. And, you know, I had known that it had been made into a movie and I was interested enough to watch it. So, there you go. And finally, I watched uh, was sort of a making up documentary about the film called Two Days of Yukio Mishima, which is really boring. Definitely not, would not recommend watching this film because it's basically like it has like the producer and the cinematographer and some of the other uh, people who were involved in making the film. And while it does have some interesting tidbits, like the fact that they basically shot the film in secret on these sets um, uh, over like the course of like two days, um, it's pretty boring and run-of-the-mill. So that's it. That's all I watched. Oh, um, 